Howdy, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I am your host, Brady Josephson, and today on the podcast, we are joined by Derek Feldman. Now, uh, I enjoy research. I like research, but Derek is a researcher. Like, this is what he does. And for the last probably about decade or so, he's been focusing on research looking at millennials and um, their behaviors and actions as it relates to giving, generosity, and advocacy. And now he's kind of in this new project focused on social influence. Uh, he launched the Influence Nation Summit. They have a new uh, research report out looking at young America or 18 to 30-year-olds. And that's where he's focusing now on his research to see how uh, this uh, age group, this formative time, how they are participating in things like giving generosity and advocacy in the United States. So uh, that's what we spend a lot of time talking about today in the podcast, uh, what some of his research says, what it means for giving, what it means for nonprofits, um, how uh, this group are trusting of government and trusting of nonprofits and businesses and what that means. And then we talk, uh, of course, a little bit about generosity and kind of Derek's approach to generosity. So uh, if you're interested at all in 18 to 30-year-olds, or maybe you are one, or maybe someday you'll have one, uh, Maybe you'll enjoy this conversation. So uh, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. I said, Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Oh, welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Oh, welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Hey, Derek, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Uh, I could never miss an opportunity <laughs> with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I appreciate it. So we've connected for a long time, and in that time, I've been able to see you do all kinds of really cool stuff in the nonprofit space, the social impact space. Uh, we're going to talk more about kind of influence, which is really your main focus now and moving forward. But how did you get started into this whole social impact nonprofit for good space? Um. Uh, I, I, I could tell you the story of that my mom actually brought me to one of the first social movements I ever participated in, which was 1986 in Hands Across America. It was the human chain. It was like the ice bucket challenge of that year. Um, and uh, I went home one year and I found that I found a picture of us signing up. So there's actual proof, by the way. There you go. Uh, the researcher, which is very important today. Um, so there's proof of me signing up with my mom. And I went in and I said, hey, mom. You know, this is kind of like that pivotal moment where you where you try to discover like why you do what you do. And I had concocted in my head in 10 minutes all of these things that I was going to do. Right. And so I said, hey, mom, so you love hunger. You're into global poverty issues. You love being in movements and you're this biggest activist. I never knew about this is amazing. We're finally connecting. And she's like, no. I just went over that thing because we hadn't been to Springfield and there was a good bar over there that we wanted to go to. <laughs> Dreams crushed and later yeah. on. Like, so that is not the reason. I didn't grow up that way. I, I would say that um, my first instance was actually with learning to give um, right out of uh, Lilly School of Philanthropy where I went to the, where I did my graduate work at the same time and, and which was an initiative and is an initiative to educate um, people in K-12, students in K-12 around philanthropy education overall. And so from that point, I've just sort of been interested in, in two things primarily, which is how do we get people to do more and do 
uh, you know, an act for these things that we're all trying to get them to care about. Mm -hmm. And the second part is, is particularly looking at young populations. So these 18 to 30 year old, the person who's in their formative years, when we're going through all these weird changes. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with the, the idea and maybe the notion that uh, the more that somebody does and gets more active at these formative years that later on they're going to be more active and involved too, which I think every cause anywhere would appreciate. So that's where I spend most of my energies and time. Um, but like you said, some things have changed a little as I've moved into particular areas of focus as well. Yeah. And so one of those particular areas is, is influence um, and how it, you know, shapes decision-making. So maybe tell us about this kind of slight pivot to focusing more exclusively on influence and kind of why you did that and, and what that's all about. Yeah. So, um, this year happened to be the 10 year anniversary of the millennial impact project. And for some individuals listening, you may not know that project was designed to try and understand cause engagement holistically with the millennial generation. And so for the last 10 years, we, we have released research. We've had an event where we covered that research, talked about some of the issues in there. And we're coming up into being 10 years old, which is an always a weird age, right, maybe? <laughs> and so we have a 10-year-old initiative, and we had to say to ourselves, where is the research moving us now? And we were constantly getting questions. I would speak at events or maybe even through Twitter or anything else. Hey, Derek, are you going to look at Gen Z? Are you going to go to Millennial? Are you going to stick with it forever? What's the situation with that? You know, and, and we, through a lot of conversations with the Case Foundation, who's been the founding and um, the underwriting partner for the last 10 years, kudos to them and please everybody. They've been the ones that have been able to allow us to do what we do. And, and over those conversations, we came to two major aha moments for us that led us to focus on influence. First and foremost is, is that we, we learned that in the last 10 years, we have a population that is susceptible to do good. They are encouraged, they're highly educated, they're participating in movements, they're participating in discussions and so on. But yet at times, they're not engaging in the ways in which that we thought they would. Hmm. And, and so there's this thing in the back of our head. And as every year had gone by for the last four years, people would say, Derek, how come millennials are not voting or, you know, whatever idea or hypothesis they had. And, and so it kind of took track of all of those. And I was looking back and I'm, and every time that we were doing the research, I would sort of check off, are we trying to answer this? And why didn't this happen? I mean, because all the indicators are there, everything, mm -hmm. if I had a checklist, it's all there and done. And so what I realized is, is that no matter if we have the inclination uh, and which we knew from our research that the population does, is that it still takes persuasion. It still hmm. takes something to get us going. We've got to flex that muscle and it's just going to sit there and go dormant if it's not acted upon. Hmm. So in that instance of trying to get people to do something, I also realized that we live in an age where influence matters. And influence matters from both positive and negative. And as I was looking at and, and interacting with practitioners through our studies and others, I realized that a lot of marketers, communicators, and fundraisers are only singularly focused on where I'm going and what I want you to do. No matter what's happening in and around your world or what even another organization might be influencing you to do for the complete opposite right? as well. Um, and, and somebody said to me, he's like, well, what do millennials care about? I'm like, well, there's a lot of things they care about, but in particular, 
one thing that we have to realize is that there's influences working constantly for and against what we have going on. And I think that that led us to where we are, which is we still need to focus on young America. We still need to focus on the formative years. We are going to anchor ourselves between 18 and 30 years old, um, where a lot of this stuff happens. Those are two, those are some pivotal years in there. We'll have a first intergenerational study next year because Gen Z and millennial will be together in our study. And um, we're going to look at how people are influenced to act or not act for the issues they care about. Very cool. You know, I hadn't thought about just the sheer scale of influencing factors that we have to deal with now and that, you know, Generation Z, as I like to call it, or Canadians <laughs> like to call it, uh, you know, the amount of influences that they're going to have from all over the place. You know, like way back, you maybe you had your parents and some institutions and your school, but, it, you know, was, you could probably count on a hand or two, right? And now just like go through one day the amount of things that are influencing you and it's insane. And, I, and that conversation comes out all of the time from yeah. marketers of causes who come to me and say, we want to be the next and you fill in the blank. Or right. we want to have the biggest thing that, got, that happens like this. And, and I think what we're, we're, we don't or we lack an understanding of, which is essentially what we're trying to do in the research project, is we have to equip people to do two things primarily in the influence world. Listen first, which is Mm. very, very important. (laughs) And then secondly, understand how we're going to have to lift ourselves above where the conversation is and or or be more known in it and then utilize as much influence as we can to get action to happen. Mm. And when we couple those things together, listening and then making our influence together, we can get action to happen. And it surprises me yet that as we go along the way trying to get the general population, whether it's vote, give $10, give monthly $10, whatever that is, is that we're not quite understanding what in the world is happening to that individual outside of our own world. Right. And, and what's interesting about that is, is that somebody will say, well, what, what are they doing today? And I'm like, well, they're going to likely see, receive hundreds of thousands of messages um, but path- passively and actively. And so today, you want everybody to stop and think about your cause. Well, then we're going to have to reset and really think about how we're going to have that happen hmm. because it's not so much that it may not be that you're not, you know, they, they're unaware of who you are. It's just there's a lot of competing forces out there. And, and if we don't understand the complexity of those, it's going to be very difficult with laser precision to try and penetrate through that to get to the individual to make them act. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's kind of a crazy world, you know. And our world is is digital, and it's this irony where we've never had more ability to reach people, information at our fingertips, you know, more data and tools to understand who people are and what they do. And yet at the same time, it's almost like there's a growing disconnect between like what we're able to do and communicate because everyone's just fighting to just get their message, you know. So it's full of all these different ironies. Um, well, in, in the digital world, what's amazing, which we could, you know, it took us forever to do in the offline world, would be, you know, we have technologies now that allow us to listen. Mm. We really, really do. I mean, there are companies that you can pay, obviously, to do this <laughs> for you, which make a lot of money. But then in addition to that, it's, you know, I asked, um, we, I was just with a, a research client of mine, and I said, um, so do, can you share with me any data you have on what people are saying about the issue today? It was like crickets, right? And I thought, wait a minute. 
it, you just, I, I said, from the moment I walked into this institution with the wonderful setup of like everything, like we'll own this issue. And I'm yeah. like, you just told me you owned it, but yet you have no <laughs> idea what people are talking about. It. So I said, how are you going to, how are you going to lead when you don't know what's being said? Yeah. That is a very key thing that in the world of influence, if we really want a millennial or a young person to do something, and whether you're 18 or 80, no, it doesn't matter. We have to understand where the population is, how they're talking about it. How do we, how do we move and persuade them from being in this un, sort of weird segment? Maybe at times they're part of the movable middle. Who knows? But we've mm. got to understand where they are first before we act. Yeah. So ACT is a word that is in your kind of research study, and so it's Young America, and we've talked a lot about influence. So it's influencing Young America to ACT. Uh, how do you define Young America, and then uh, what do you define as ACT? And then I want to get into the research and what you've uncovered. Yeah, sure. So we, um, we in our study, focus on Young America, who's 18 to 30, year, uh, gotcha. 30 years okay. old. So that's our, our cutoff. Now, the millennial population is going to be the 1980 to 2000 time span. So what was interesting in our last group of studies prior to this that I was involved with, you know, we were we had data all the way up to 37-year-olds, right? Because that's where 37, 38-year-olds, where we were. And, and the, those are big cohorts in there. And what's important in um, when you're doing generational studies is you do have potentially some age age sort of a goalpost, but you also are looking at it from the lens of life cycle changes, such as mm-hmm. marriage partnership or dependence, management positions and so on, completely financially independent. And so in each one of these scenarios, it alters our involvement at times. And, and it sometimes looks like uh, it's, a, it's a trajectory positive. It increases, but it goes up and down as we kind of go through it. So it's never, it's always not necessarily constant. And that's where people get causes get really worried about, especially during formative years, because they'll see ebb and flows. And I'll often hear a response to that is like millennials or young people just don't care, they don't stick with something. And I'm like, well, hang tight, just a sec. Yeah. You were there too. Let's let's, you know, we were all there. <laughs> and and these are formative years where things will happen to us that either etch up or etch down our involvement. So that's that's the key thing there. When we look at actions, we look at the spectrum of the supporter mentality. Now, this is a very, very key thing. The general population views themselves as supporters of issues. We know this from our research in the last 10 years. And when I use that word supporter, because I know you do a lot with the donation side, is supporter means I support the issue through all of my actions. Those actions include things like um, giving, it includes donating, it includes activism, it includes networking, it includes my skill, my talent, all of this stuff. So when I'm using the supporter mentality, I have to look at it from a broad range. And in fact, one thing we've added in there too would be voting, which somebody believes change can happen with that too. So we have, um, we look at the actions which incorporate everything from giving, voting, volunteerism, all the spectrums. And then we look at where the individual things that change will likely happen from that, of course. We have questions in and around that. And then we look at where people are susceptible to to act more than they are not to. And that's where we kind of get to some of the study pieces. Yeah, and the, the research is, you know, fascinating. I'm still kind of like processing it all. Um, there's a couple elements around like nonprofits that I want to talk about, but what what kind of stood out to you as like, wow, I never thought about that or this was super interesting and, you know, like do you have a couple highlights of the research that that stood out? Yeah, the first one is news. <laughs> I think that <laughs> you know, I, So we went in here again, our purpose is to try to understand 
the progression of this particular journey I'm going to talk about from being coming unaware of an issue, what, what prompt, what influenced you to become aware and then influenced you from that awareness factor to cause adoption, cause awareness, cause interest and so forth in action. So we look at it from the early formative stages of somebody becoming aware and, and so on. So we had to understand what particular elements are persuading that awareness uh, capability. And then after that, we wanted to understand what aspects in media, popular culture were persuading actions. And what was very interesting, which we didn't suspect, um, although we were asking a ton around it, is around where does the place news fits into this and does mm-hmm. it anymore? Mm-hmm. As you can tell, there's been a lot going on around news <laughs> and media and everything else. So we thought it's, it's a really important piece for us. So we, we found out that news still has a very important pay, place to educate and become aware. It isn't necessarily one that converts into action later on, but it is the one that's prompting combined with other influences in and around it. So that, that definitely was a key thing, I think, for causes to understand is that news and media and how story is told is still influencing the adoption of where they got to these issues. The, the second thing is we were a little shocked that in the United States right now, companies had a lower trust position than the federal government. Yeah, <laughs> that stood out to me. Um, in fact, I asked like four or five times, please, let's read, let's double check, quadruple <laughs> check. And um, so that one is a little bit of a shock. And although after doing some initial qualitative measures that were currently underway, what we now understand is that a lot of that comes from a lot of scandals and other issues that's happening in the corporate world. We have some things in which that the social media networks are going through some issues too as well, which kind of plays into that. And in fact, that there have been some unfriendly consumer practices that our panels have talked about too as well. So we were a little shocked. I do think what's also important here is is that when you look at the trust factor, people like themselves, they trust themselves versus nonprofits were number two, which is a very, very important thing that as a .org, you have got a unique position to be trustworthy against all of the other pieces that are out there. So good job on that part. Yeah, that that was one of the most fascinating things to me, obviously, not just like the government business kind of uh, <laughs> relationship, which I found surprised, but that nonprofits are trusted that high because I think, you know, as a nonprofit, you know, charity nerd, you always hear how, you know, untrustworthy nonprofits are and these scandals. And so to kind of see in the study that like, well, there is some of that, but relative to some other large kind of sectors like government or business, it's more trustworthy than them for for this demographic. You know what I love? um, So as the research guy, I really love general population studies and national representative samples because it removes the outlier that you and I hang out with all the time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so when you're talking about what does America, young America, think about something, we're going to get – we're going to probably see things that we don't surround ourselves with on a constant basis. And, and it's not surprising to me because it's, it's like the same thing when a marketer or a communicator or a fundraiser says, I feel like we're sharing the same story. And I'm like, I suspect that you are. Um, but I also suspect that the vast majority of the population hasn't heard it. Yeah, of course. And, and so why, why focus so much on narrative change unless you, don't, unless you need to in a campaign environment? But what's, what's interesting in this piece, even around when it comes to charity and trust and all of that is, that, that might be there, but in, in the larger swath of the general public, it's probably not as important. They're, they're more trustworthy than not. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, some of that's too just maybe like how, what's going on in your early, early formative years. So, you know, before you're, you're coming up and seeing some examples of business in particular and some truths that, you know, we grew up thinking is just like, wow, that's, that's not true. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of breaks some of that trust. And then also like as, as, um, much as the government is in the news, like we interact with businesses, I think, on a more practical level, like every day than we do a lot with governments. So there's, it's in the news, but then we go shopping and we buy stuff. And, and so there's a lot more opportunities to break trust with businesses often than, you know, government too. So it's kind of like interaction points. And people don't interact a lot with nonprofits in terms of frequency. So maybe there's an element of that too, you know? I, I think there's a particular opportunity here with causes. One in part, one piece of that is causes can be great partners side by side with the general population to address an issue. Uh, I'm not saying that they are the ones that have to lead it, but they work in tangent with mm-hmm. them. And in saying, we're dealing with hunger, you care about hunger, let's work together mm-hmm. and we can make this possible because we're a trusted partner in this issue. We tend to, though, at times in our marketing, say we're the only ones doing it. Right. And we've been doing it from you know, 1900, whenever it is. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we try to position ourselves as the only person. And, and in fact, you know, the, the people in the studies that I've been doing over the last 10 years, they're not looking for you to be that particular person with them. They're looking for you to be a partner with them. And partner means is that we connect and collaborate together, that we have both equal stakes in this game that we call social change, and that all of us have a chance to be equals in this in this role um, in trying to make something different for somebody else. And that's a very different cultural position than I think mm. is hard for some causes to take at times. Hey everybody, Brady here. We'll get back to the episode in a second, but first, Did you know that recurring or monthly donors are worth up to 5.4 times more than those who only make one-time donations? That's one of the key insights and reasons behind a big study that we did in partnership with salesforce.org, which you can download for free at recurringgiving.com. We gave three different donations to 115 nonprofits and tracked and captured the entire process and all the communications for three months analyzed it all and tried to summarize it in this big old report full of insights, ideas, and experiments that you can run to optimize your program. That's all at recurringgiving.com. And while you're there, you can actually benchmark your organization and your program compared to the 115 nonprofits that we had in our study. Again, all of this is at recurringgiving.com and it is for free. So if you're interested, please check it out. That is recurringgiving.com. Back to the show. You know, one of the kind of overarching takeaways that that I had in kind of going through it at first was nonprofits seem to be like increasingly important or like really key to social change. And I don't know why that was surprising as someone who's been in the nonprofit space, but to, to see that people see that, um, uh, see the space in that way. Is that a fair statement as kind of what came out in the study is, you know, these Absolutely. young America sees nonprofits this way? Absolutely. And that's what we're seeing now. You know, in fact, um, when we look at some of the individuals who are part of the panel, we start talking more and more to them as we go through, because we usually do these in a mixed methods approach, right? Quantitative elements are qualitative first, then a quantitative measure, then a qualitative, some ethnographies and so on. And, and as you start to go through here, you, you get part of the story in survey data. And mm. then you start to unravel it as you go forward. And 
there is a sense from some that we've interviewed to say, well, when some of these areas like government or so forth don't necessarily perform like the way they think, or even our corporations do, they're looking for others to step in and step forward. I think that's a role where causes can be playing a, an important piece of it, of the, of the piece of social change. Now, we know when we look at social change, it incorporates a you know, really a systems change environment, right? So that's going to be government and corporations and people and, and other institutions and causes. And so that, that system change needs to compensate for itself as it goes through these, these moments and movements that we have over time. And the, and the public can really, this is a time where nonprofits can step forward and shine a light on what they're working on, but yet say, we're here, we're ready for you to come and let's work together on this mm-hmm. and go forward. So I think it's a unique opportunistic time. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of neat. Like the whole reason why the nonprofit space was birthed was to fill that gap between what government did and what business couldn't. And so to A, see that gap still there, but see this whole other generation kind of identify a bit of that gap and still see nonprofits as that role. And, you know, as businesses maybe uh, are, are shrinking from some of that responsibility, but also stepping into in governments to, you know, for nonprofits to fill that void is, is really interesting. So I, I found that encouraging, but I didn't know if I was just like grasping at straws because I wanted to see that. <laughs> or if that was actually in there. So that wasn't kind of neat. Um, so you you talked about how ACT is beat more than just giving. Um, you know, it's got a lot of other elements in voting and volunteerism and stuff like that. I want to talk a little bit about generosity. Um, how do you define, you know, generosity? Would you define it in the same way that it's more than just giving? It's about these other elements? Or how do you define generosity personally? It was, it was two years ago um, – Somebody came uh, three years ago. Sorry, I get all these studies mixed up. <laughs> when you when you kind of do ten years worth, yeah, that's understandable. We'll let you, we'll let you get away with it. Yeah. So um, it was three years ago. Somebody said to me, um, "Giving is going down." And, you know, I had all these stats, whatever it was, from the typical stuff that we all read. And I said, "I'm not. I don't see that." Mm. What do you mean? Do you do you disregard all the data? And I'm like, no, I don't. I said, well, so let, let's just take giving in the United States. <clears throat> there's this there's this mechanism that measures it. Complete big supporter of that mechanism, but we have to understand how what that mechanism measures. That mechanism isn't measuring all of giving and all of philanthropy, where it may have been, where it may have, or it did in the past. And because we have so many unique things that are happening now, and we have so many unique opportunities that are occurring in general, what we have to recognize today is is that giving and the opportunities to give, the the ways in which you can give have expanded and expands beyond our measurements right Mm -hmm. now. And it was at three years ago, I said, actually, we find that a significant amount of the people in our studies continue to give and give in many different fashions. But one way that's unrecorded is what you and I do every single day, which is we are everyday philanthropists at times. So what that means is I can go to the grocery store and make a conscious decision to use a non-plastic bag. And I was generous to the planet in that moment, but it will never be recorded. It will only be recorded in my consciousness. And the challenge with that is is that we won't ever necessarily capture all of our generosity in that way. Because one, some of us don't need or desire to record it that way. Some of us want to, and which is fine, and that might, and we don't incentivize that in certain instances and so forth. So when I look at generosity, I kind of look at it more holistically and say, what am I doing 
to support the people or the planet or in any of the other initiatives that I care about in which that another person in that is going to benefit from something, not that I benefit from, but something else does uh, as well. And we have recorded actions in that. We have unrecorded actions. We have small acts of generosity, consciousness and unconscious that go through all of that. So do you, do I think there is a generous society on hundred percent? Do I think we need to get stronger and better on the measurements and generosity? 100% as well. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Cause I mean, I reference the, the measurement all the time and how it's flat and how people care more, but giving is relatively flat. So we're getting worse at actually converting people's caring into charitable contributions. And I do think that there's a valid argument and there's elements of the nonprofit and the charitable space's lack of kind of innovation to capture that. We're kind of slow moving. And so people have found other solutions. Uh, but there's so much even financial giving that happens outside of the mechanism, like crowdfunding projects of just your neighbor's house burns down and you give them money. That's not tracked. But that is like the most generous form of giving, you know, to your neighbor with no receipt, no record. Like that's that's the most pure form of giving in some in some levels, and it's not tracked. I'd be interested to know because one of the concerning things that I have uh, or view as it relates to giving in particular is people kind of trading off of saying I don't need to give because I bought this product that is generous for the planet. So kind of um, you know I do good in, in other ways, therefore I do not need to give. And I, I still struggle with that if, like, that's a good thing because we're, you know, we're using our, um, you know, our purchasing power for better decisions that does benefit the planet. There's huge scale in that. But are we losing this kind of impetus to give? Because I still think there's value in giving away money purely to, you know, another cause or person or issue that gets away from consumerism. Because if we're just using consumerism as a lever, I'm, I'm worried about that. Do you ever uh, – does that come out in research? Do you have any of those concerns? Do you see people kind of alleviating the responsibility to give from these other actions? Uh, yeah, I don't. Um, and, uh, and, and I'll give you a couple instances of where we see this play out. So when you track individuals and their participate, participation holistically in causes and issues – it comes in and out from education consumption environments where you know I'm getting receiving messages and so forth, all the way to the giving aspects of volunteering and activism. So we've got this holistic platform that I work with. And it isn't that somebody says, I've got to be a giver in order to be involved, or this is my way that I'm doing it, like a substitution effect, which does occur that we see at times in the arts organizations that they've struggled with, you know, if I'm in the ticket purchasing environment sure. versus the donation environment. But, but when you see an individual that cares deeply and adopts the issue, then they'll, mm. they'll act within that issue in many instances. Right. So instance, in our last research over the years, we looked at, okay, what are you actually doing for the issue you do say you care about? Right. You missed tons of actions from giving in at times episodically to consistently to volunteering and, and actions overall. I do think it's an easy opportunity for someone that may not adopt this for their issue to say, okay, yeah, I did that already. Because that's the path of least resistance model that you often see, Right. And in that path of least resistance model should say the brain's telling them you, you should do something because you're going to feel crappy if you don't. What's the least minimum you can do? And in that environment, it's going to be, I could buy this thing and it has a residual effect. At the same time, I'm also benefiting. And rather than me just giving a donation. So we might see it from that. But 
holistically, those individuals are unlikely to probably be any of the kind of cause enthusiasts that we've been talking about that tend to be consistent monthly donors and all these other factors. Yeah. Well, um, that's that's uh, good to hear, I think. But then also, you know, the other thing is action leads to more action. And this is kind of that whole debate of, you know, slacktivism and all this different stuff. But like, you know, what's the alternative? Just stand on the sidelines and then start giving monthly? Like people need to dip their toe in the water. They need to make little actions in different ways. And, you know, it, action leads to more action. Well, it, it does. You know, so um, I, I talk a lot about that there are four stages to movement building that often happen. So the first stage is the path of least resistance that we're talking about, where we, the brain is saying you should care. It's important. You, but you've got to do the least to get the most out, right? So this is where when we see a natural disaster, we're like, oh, my gosh, that looks awful. Mm-hmm. I should support it, but I'm not going to be a $100,000 donor. And then you've got the next stage, which is I need to see that other po- people believe like I do. I need to see that, you know, that, that Brady is a donor just like me and he looks just like me and, and, and people like me care about this. That's comforting. The companionship in the cause space is, is important, especially why, why, why movements work so well and rallies do is because when you go there, if you actually, I encourage, I encourage that one of the mandates cause employees and professionals should do is to go to a march and a rally and just sit and watch and monitor it. And you would see the impassioned people that are out there because they're seeing one another being a part of it. And a lot of cause people see that at their auctions because people are bidding on things, but they never go to the <laughs> things like rallies and protests where that also happens. Right. Right. Um, and then this, their third stage besides seeing people that believe like you, whether digitally or, or in person is, I got to constantly act to reinforce my affinity and loyalty to this thing that I care about. And it's not because I lose interest in caring. It's because all these other influences are working against it uh, at times. And that is a very key thing. I, you know, if you said to me, Derek, social media isn't important because it doesn't have X, Y, Z outcomes, I'd be like, social media is not necessarily about you. Social media is about the individual who partakes in that conversation and the feeling that they get about the issue. Are you going to say that the person that reads the post that you just did about a whale getting hurt or being whatever it is, that they can't feel emotion and care more about it just because they didn't give right there in that moment? No, no. Social media is a form of relationship that we have with our consumers constituency that builds our affinity and loyalty to the issue and the people that we all address. And and if we get rid of that, just because we're not getting an instant ROI, we're we're defeating the whole purpose of a committed group of people coming together for some common purpose. So I discourage that notion that social media is a form of slacktivism. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the, in the early days of digital, because we had so much access to uh, metrics and analytics and we, we were very binary in our analysis, though, it was kind of like, oh, this person gave from this source. So that was the reason why they gave was this email, you know, but as time goes on and it's like, well, we're idiots because there's so many other things that relate to a decision. It's not the last thing that, you know, completely influenced them. And so now, like, you know, we're adjusting our metrics and just the other day, actually, um, we ran a test where uh, we were trying to look at the influence of social media on giving because if you just look at you know how many people gave from Facebook, it's always going to be low, right? So we have to evaluate it different ways. And it's tough to track. It really is. Uh, but we found that um, of the people over a six-month period who just clicked like the Facebook icon on the bottom of, of emails so that they maybe liked the page or just kind of engaged with Facebook at all, over that six-month period, anyone who clicked grew their giving about 18 to 20%. 
So like not giving from Facebook, but just kind of – and I mean, we're making some assumptions there. But just the fact that they were somewhat socially engaged on a Facebook platform helped grow their giving compared to people who didn't, who were receiving the same email messages and things like that, right? So these things influence us, which you know, you're researched and you're an expert in. Like all these things influence us. And if we kind of parse them out and get too binary, I think you know, it's at our own detriment. Yeah, and I, um, I look at the, the digital space. I look at the offline space. And I look at all of these things that we do as causes and I say to my, I, you know, and I, and I, I can hear the other angle of this from the cause side is limited resources, limitations when it comes to a lot of these things. And, and there's kind of two parts to this that I, I always come back to. Our causes are built upon people. Mm-hmm. They're built upon our relationship with the community and the constituencies that we have that give us times and resources and skills and talent and their network from from every other month or every month and every day. And the goal of those people is to stand up and for and with us as we go through and fight for the people we're fighting for. And if we remove the element that makes the relational connection as an influence piece to all of our other work, we're we're reducing and minimizing our role of being Mm -hmm. about and for the community. The second piece of this that's really important too is that our relationship with our constituencies is important because we cannot build our movement without people. You cannot buy a movement. You just can't do it. Mm. And the more and more we use digital tools to spread narratives and show that other people care just as deeply as I do about this means that we're going to spread it that way. And it's going to be very, very good. And I think those that are hardline um, people that look at social media or digital are even convenings and discussions, whether they be 10 people to 100,000 people, we're evaluating it at times of immediate return on investment rather than, than the long tail loyalty to affinity to the issue in that we do need these things. We do need to see others. We do need to do these actions to build that over time because I know there's so much other stuff happening. And yeah. if I'm doing it, we're going to have a really hard time maintaining a, a, a very strong constituency. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you've given us uh, plenty of your time. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for all the research that you've done to date. And I'm excited about all this new kind of direction on influence in Young America. Um, What's the best way for people to find out more about you and your work in this research? Yeah, sure. So um, you can always head to my website, so DerekFeldman.com. The uh, research initiative, which you can find the report, again, thanks to the Case Foundation support in the initiative, which is CauseAndSocialInfluence.com. That's causeandsocialinfluence.com. Awesome. Well, thanks, Derek. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Derek. And uh, please do check out his research, causeandsocialinfluence.com. Causeandsocialinfluence.com is where you can find it. And it's pretty interesting stuff looking at that 18 to 30-year-old range and uh, particularly how they believe and interact with nonprofits, I found uh, pretty interesting and pretty useful. So maybe you will as well. So as always, thank you for listening to this podcast and I will hopefully see you next week.
Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. It- Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kuchiriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>